Thank you, guys. All right, well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you and to worship with you. We're going to now grab our Bibles and turn to John chapter 3 as we continue, as we go through the Gospel of John. Uh, This will actually be the last of our uh, going through the Gospel of John at this first section as we pause for a moment to go into the Lenten season. So we're going to have a a Lenten sermon series, and then we'll get back into the Gospel of John after Easter. Um, I also want to just, again, make sure if you can make it on Wednesday, we'd love to have you. That will kick off that Lenten sermon series. And also, there's going to be a prayer class that's going to take place before the service at nine o'clock, where a normal adult education hour would take place. And we'd Love to do this Lenten journey with you. And so uh, join with us as we do these different things, as we learn how to pray together, as we um, are in a season where we're preparing for the joy of Easter together as we reflect on the cross. Um, With that in mind, John chapter 3, we're going to be at verse 22 today. Let me read it to you. And you can follow along on the screens as well. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, may the words that we just read sink deep into our hearts. May you get me out of the way so that you can speak, Lord Uh, We bring so many things that are on our hearts into this space now, and we just ask that you would clear them so that we can hear from you and to know what to do as your disciples. Lord, there are so many uh, experiences this week, some of great joy, some of great fear and challenge, and we place them all before you. We ask that you would be an ever-present help here in this space. May you speak through this text this morning. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, you can see at the beginning of this story 
that there is a good old-fashioned religious dispute going on. And it's really interesting that the thing that the dispute is taking um, place over is a major theme, right? As we've been going through John, one of the joys is kind of see that there's things that John is trying to develop as we've been talking about John, this older, wiser, best friend of Jesus who's writing this gospel at the end of his life, and he's really trying to say, okay, you've heard Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You, you've seen the, the great stories of the gospel. Let me fill in some details from my point of view about how I would tell the gospel story and some themes that have been developing over time that need to be paid attention to at this time that John is speaking to the early church. And one of them we see is this idea of ceremonial washing keeps coming up again and again. We can remember in Jesus' first miracle that John is describing that where does he do the miracle? He's doing it in these jugs Uh, these water jugs that were used for ceremonial washing. And so he uses the very water that was used for ceremonial washing, but now he's turned it into wine. There's like this announcement that now that Jesus is on the scene, that there's this new wine that's breaking forth into the world. And it's going to be a source of great joy. It's going to keep the party going. It's going to be a thing that makes a a, a source of celebration for people. And so we see here that that theme is also there, that there's ceremonial washing, there's a conversation about a wedding, and we also see that, 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 that John is expressing his joy, his joy. So we see three major themes being worked out again in this story. So there's this dispute at the beginning between a particular Jew, it says, and these two disciples of John, and they're having some discussion about uh, what's going on with baptism. We don't know all the theological points. Maybe they're going back and forth with. In fact, scholars are really curious about what this baptism ministry before Jesus was really about. What was the purpose of it? What was the meaning for the people that were doing this baptism? It's a little bit different after Jesus and his, his baptismal ministry, but we don't get all the details, do we? But we do see probably what's at the heart of the dispute, and that is that after we learn that they're debating about ceremonial washing, then what do they do? They go up to their leader, they go up to John, and they tell him that there's this new guy that's on the scene, and he's doing the same kind of thing that you're doing. His ministry is just like your ministry. You have a baptism ministry, and he has a baptism ministry, and we're over here, and he's over there, and then we see the key phrase, I think, at the bottom here of uh, verse 26, and everyone is going to him. And so there's this concern that this new popular ministry is on the scene. In fact, just geographically, I think we have a map, do we have a map here of the geography of where these two were doing their ministries? Am I, no, we don't have that, okay, that's fine. <laughs> They were very far apart, these two ministries, actually, from what we can discern from the geography. And so there was real no, no visible 
sign of Jesus that everybody was going to him, but there was a rumor mill, right? There was this way by which what Jesus was doing sort of trickling into John's camp, and then there was this source of concern, and then there was this belief like, well, every single person now isn't going to come to our ministry. Our ministry is threatened. There's a jealousy. Everyone's going to him. And yet, John reveals such a beautiful response, right? He, he shows so much about what a posture of fidelity to God in ministry looks like in this story. And he begins his response to these disciples with this phrase. He says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. What's he trying to say here? He's trying to say that his ministry, the effectiveness of his ministry, he's talking to these disciples who probably thought he was really special. He was their hero. And he's turning to them and he's saying, everything that I have done has been because I have received a gift from heaven. But it's really not about me. It's really not about something special other than the gift that God gave. The ministry is about God's work being done through John. And so, I want that to be sort of our main idea. What does this reveal? If John has picture-perfect clarity about who he is and what he is to be about, and he is not the hero, then what is he? What is his role in the story? He's the guide. He's the teacher. He's the one who comes alongside. You know, in every great story, there is a guide, right? It's the Gandalf, it's the Yoda, it's the Mr. Miyagi. It's that person that if you need to know something, you go to them, right? Oh, so we have these ones. Okay, okay. You found them right? And th this last week, actually yesterday, I, uh, I had the joy again of trying to teach my children something new. This time, my four-year-old was begging to learn how to ice skate. And she kept asking, and we were over at Rolling Hills at the pavilion, and she saw the ice skaters, and she thought, wow, they, she saw them twirling, and <laughs> how beautiful they looked. And, and so she begged and begged and begged, and finally I gave in, okay, we're going to go ice skating. So there I am, I have my son, who's eight, Remy, and my daughter, who's four, Glory, and we get our ice skates, we pay way too much money. Uh, there's people out on the ice that are all learning how to ice skate, so this is a highly treacherous environment. <laughs> and my four-year-old, who thought she really wanted to learn how to ice skate until she put her ice skates on, <laughs> and then put one piece of the skate on the ice and decided she was going to have none of it. 
right? Absolutely not. This is way too hard. And I haven't been ice skating in a while. My son's never ice skated before. So now we're in a dilemma because we're all going to sort of try and learn how to ice skate together. This is an incredibly humbling experience to try and learn how to do something new, to teach your children something new. And there they are, and they can't even go out onto the ice because they're freaking out. And you realize that for them to learn how to ice skate, they're going to have to be willing to hold onto the wall, and then they're going to have to be willing to go out and just edge a little bit out onto the ice. And then what are they going to really have to be willing to do? Fall down over and over and get wet and icy and hopefully not get in somebody else's way. And as you realize what it takes to learn something new, you realize uh, it's never fun at the beginning. Like when you see people twirling around and doing all the things, you, you just want to instantly be able to do that. But the reality is there's a barrier to entry to learn anything new. And this humility, uh, this willingness to do something new, uh, usually takes somebody who's there to come alongside you and to allow for you to fall down and to tell you that it's okay to fall down. It's actually part of the learning process. Like you will never get good unless you actually try and put yourself at risk and are willing to fall down. And you need this person, this guide who's gone before, who's done the thing that you want to learn how to do and is willing to turn around and to look at you, oh, unfortunate one, who does not have this skill, and to not look down on you, or to make fun of you, or to think that you're less than because you don't have the skill that they have learned yet. And yet, also, this person's job is not to fix everything for you, to do it for you to save you from the pain of learning. Their job is actually to invite you into the pain of learning so that you can learn how to do it yourself. And so I think the thing that, if we want to sum up the essence of the teaching this morning, it might be, I'm sure that you would agree that there are many who want to be the hero but do we have that many good guides? Like when we go to the movie theater and we look at the big screen, right, and we're watching all the movies that have captured the minds of our culture in this cultural moment, we see hero after hero after hero after hero after hero. Batman, Aquaman, Black Panther, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Black Widow, Wolverine, The Hulk, Captain Marvel, Catwoman, shall I continue? <laughs> we could do this forever, couldn't we? And sometimes when we sit and we watch uh, these heroes, we can end up feeling like 
there's this psychological pat on the back. This mindset that's given to us like, the world is falling apart, and if it wasn't for me and my special abilities, who would save the world? And in some ways, what we end up doing is we end up thinking that we're the only one who could save the world. As the news cycle brings to us the latest tragedy going around the globe, we start to think about what I need to do to save all of the world's problems. And yes, we of course want to play a part in dealing with the difficult things in the world and in our lives, but as Brene Brown says, there is a fine line between saving the world and manipulating our others' lives, however well-meaningly, in our own image. You see, sometimes when we play the hero role in people's lives, we're really just trying to get them to think and feel more like us instead of actually trying to help them. You see, John, they wanted him to be the hero. They wanted him to be the big deal. And they were so uncomfortable with this new guy, Jesus, because there could only be one hero. There can't be two heroes. And yet, we see John so graciously remind them of something that they already knew in the story, which was John's testimony, because we learned about it in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. You yourselves can testify. I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. John doesn't want the credit. This is what makes him a great guide. He doesn't see what he's doing as something that he gets to possess and take with him to heaven and say, God, look how great my ministry was. Look how great all the things I did uh, are. Can Can you let me in? No, he's not jealous at all. In fact, he's so certain of what his was to do that when they were jealous, he was joyous. That when they they saw their thing go down, he thought, oh, wonderful, my mission is accomplished. I can now give away what has been given to me, my job of creating a platform for the next generation to come into the world, for this new ministry to come into the world, is why I was put on this earth. And so right now I get to enjoy the fact that what I was made to do, I'm doing and I'm seeing it before my very eyes. This is the type of attitude that I wonder if we could take on in our discipleship walks, if it would change how we think about what we're doing here at church and what we do with each other, to just ask ourselves a question, what is it that we would love to learn? And who is it that already has learned that skill that I can humble myself and say, 
I would love to learn from you how to pray. I would love to learn from you how to go through this difficult thing that I am going through. And we do that not just for ourselves, but we do that so that we can learn a new skill that we can then pass on to somebody else. And in this legacy, we continue to help one another, to guide one another in our Christian walk. And of course, what we end up learning is what is ours to do. What is ours to say yes to and what is ours to say no to. And eventually, maybe we could develop a mission statement like John did. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, if you wake up with that kind of mission statement, what does it mean about the way your life is going to go? Well, it's going in a powerful way, but that power is really in its humility. It's the opposite direction of the way most people are going. It's looking in a whole new direction, looking downward, lower. I must become lower so that Jesus can become great. J.R.R. Tolkien once wrote this. He said, The road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. The quest may be attempted by the weak, with as much hope as the strong. Yet it is, of course, it is the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. You see, there's a lot of people in our history books and in positions of power that we talk about a whole lot. But when Jesus preached a Sermon on the Mount about how the world would change. He said it would change through salt and light, through humble Christian disciples willing to do the real hard work to learn from guides and to become guides for one another. So this morning, my invitation for us is to think, what is ours to do? What is mine to do? What can I give myself to to learn and to grow in so that I might then pass that on to somebody else? Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus, we ask uh, that you would become the hero of our stories. And in so doing, that we might point you like John so wonderfully pointed to you and say, it's all about you. It's all about your ministry. And may that allow a freedom in us, a peace in us, a joy in us to take the place of all of our worries and anxieties, thinking that it's all on our shoulders to fix every last problem. And Lord, we present our requests before you. We lift our hearts to you. And we just ask that in their place that you would provide peace. A peace in knowing that you have the whole world in your hands. That you are the true Savior. That you are the one who has 
all of our concerns, all of our problems taken care of. They are taken care of in light of who you are and what you have done on the cross, Lord Jesus. By way of your death and resurrection, may you fill our hearts with joy, knowing we belong to you. This is your story, and we're thankful to be a part of it. Make us salt and light. Help us to learn. Help us to do the hard work to learn from you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.